one of those mornings where you realize about halfway through the morning that you've been walking around with your pants unzipped all morning long. That was me today. I apologize to anybody who had to encounter that. Anybody who saw that and didn't say anything about it, I kind of thank you, but I kind of resent you for not saying something to me about it too. So I can be such a goob sometimes. That can happen. Um, About a month ago, in the wake of the Virginia governor, Bob McDonnell, and his wife being convicted on corruption charges, NPR ran a, a blog that the title caught my eye, and it said this, if it's not about the sex, it's about the power, unless it's about the money. And in the blog, the author made the point that the mighty have been brought low uh, many times, over and over throughout history, by the same three temptations, over and over and over again, sex, money, and power. And I've often thought that it would be an interesting experiment to watch or read the news through the grid of sex, money, and power and just see how many of the stories in the news actually have to do with one of those three things, even in the local news here in the city of Evansville. I think quite a few things probably fall into one of those three categories, sex, money, and power. I'd like for you to just imagine for the moment a city in which uh, all the business leaders of the city and all the members of the justice system of the city and all the political leaders and everyone in the city use sex, money, and power in non-destructive, non-addictive, non-exploitative ways. What would it be like to live in a city like that? And is it even possible for such a city to exist. And if it could exist, if there could be a city like that, what kind of impact would it have on the rest of the world? Well, with that in mind, I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. And we're going to continue the series that we've been in called The Gospel in the last place that you would expect to find it. And by the way, I want to thank my friend Josh Shuler who spoke last week for me. I thought he did a fantastic job. Um, if you guys, would you guys mind to just one more time show them your appreciation? I have been trying to get Josh and Laura to move back to Evansville from Colorado for some time, and uh, they continue to tell me no, at least Josh does. But I don't think Josh is getting all the information to Laura, and Laura listens to the app. So Laura, right now, if you're listening, I want to speak to you very directly that if you would come back to Evansville, we would give you a parking spot with your name on it right out in front of the center. Now, if that doesn't get you back to Evansville, I don't know what will, right? Right? Okay, so Exodus chapter 19. The people of Israel have been rescued from Egypt, and they're um, in the desert on the way to the land that God has promised them so that they don't have to live any longer in someone else's land. Now, you need to know something about Exodus chapter 19, that it begins a very important section of Scripture that runs through chapter 24. And it's very important because it's, it's here in this passage of Scripture, this section, 19 through 24, that God gives Israel what is often referred to as the Mosaic Law. And it reaches its apex in the Ten Commandments, which describe the moral code by which Israel is to live. And I think most people would be very surprised to find the gospel anywhere near this moment where the law is given, but it's there. Believe me. Look at verse 2. Chapter 19, we'll begin reading at verse 2. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. 
Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, this is the Mosaic law that he's talking about, the covenant. He says, if you keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back, and he summoned the elders of the people. He set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything that the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Now, if you would, just skip over for just a moment to chapter 20, verse 1. And we're we're just going to read a couple of verses from chapter 20. This is the Ten Commandments uh, that God gives. And we'll just read the first three verses of that. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then he says, you shall have no other gods uh, before me. Okay, I just want to stop there for now because this idea that there is a moral law by which people should live drive some people crazy. And there's a lot of confusion about it. In fact, this past week, I was in a conversation earlier in the week with a member of the local media, and it reminded me that when it comes to the subject of a moral law, that there are, uh, that people usually, uh, people who consider themselves religious or spiritual usually fall into uh, one of two camps. One of the camps is all about the law. I mean, like they are into the law. It is the totality of what they do in their religion. It is like the main thing uh, that they're about. Because that's, you know, obeying the law is how they know that they're worthy and how they know that they are saved in, in, in the way that they think about things. That's one camp. The other camp is, is a camp that wants a spirituality without a law, without any real codes of conduct, because that feels very antiquated. I mean, it feels like, you know, to them, it feels like, you know, we're more advanced as a civilization than that. We don't need a law, like a moral code, to tell us what to do. They want a spirituality without any obligations, duties, or codes. And these, those kind of people tend to be very free-spirited. They eat a lot of granola, and they live in places like, oh, I don't know, Colorado, let's say. I don't know. In actuality, though, Both perspectives are very simplistic and very naive because the Bible's teaching on the spiritual value and the purpose of the law is much deeper and it's much more nuanced than either of those two approaches. And on the way to seeing the gospel in this this passage of Scripture, I want to show you Five reasons that God gave us the law, or maybe you could say it this way, five things that the law is supposed to do in your life. Five things. Five reasons that God gave us the law are five things that the law is supposed to do in your life. Now, I have to tell you that this is really going to be a two-part sermon. So we're in this series, and I'm going to do a two-part sermon on chapter 19 and 20, uh, and then even a little, you know, another passage of Scripture next week. Uh, because there's just too much stuff here. I can't get it all into one week unless we were willing to stay for a couple of hours, and we're not willing to do that, so I'm going to break this off in a, uh, a couple of weeks. So part of it today, part of it next week. And, you, and let me just tell you something. Um, 
you really need to get both parts because I'm going to tell you that the things that most people really wrestle with when it comes to the issue of religion, spirituality, um, law, moral code, um, if you get both parts of this, we will solve that problem for you. Uh, This could change the way that you view spirituality, religion, Christianity, if you get both parts of this, okay? So five reasons that God gave us the law are five things that the law was supposed to do in your life. And, and, and just as I say that, I actually want to start by showing you one thing that the law was absolutely not given for. So that's how we're going to start. One thing the law was absolutely not given for. Say that with me. Say absolutely not. Absolutely not. Okay, this is one thing that the, abs- that the law was absolutely not given for. And I want you to look back at chapter 19, verse 4 again. You yourselves, God says, have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Now stop there because I want you to notice a couple of things in those two verses. First, I want you to notice that God says, he says, what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings. And then if, if you remember in chapter 20, he, he, he also said it again. He said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Do you see where the emphasis is? You see how he keeps emphasizing his action. Uh, not Israel's action. The emphasis is on him. God is saying, I brought you out of Egypt. You you didn't rescue yourselves. Uh, You didn't save yourselves. I saved you. I did it. And then he uses uh, an eagle as as a metaphor to depict himself swooping down and rescuing these people who were helpless and enslaved and then carrying them to safety. In other words, God is saying, and you got to get this, God is saying, you contributed nothing to your rescue. You contributed nothing to your salvation. I did it all because I love you. Okay, so that's one thing I want you to notice. And then the other thing I want you to notice is the chronology. This is very important. I want you to notice this. Get this. This is critical. you got to understand this. God saved Israel, okay, right? He rescued Israel from Egypt. Before he gave them the law. Now let that just sink in for a minute. He saved them before he gave them the law. What's the significance of that? Well, the significance is this, is that their salvation had nothing to do with the law. Their salvation had nothing to do with obedience to the law because when God saved them, he hadn't, they hadn't even received the law yet. They didn't even know the law. God hadn't even talked to them about the law. So their salvation was completely separate from any law that God had given them. Now that's critically important. Because that's what distinguishes Christianity from every other uh, religion in the world. In fact, I will tell you, this is where Christian groups and churches often even go off the deep end. Because they get that confused. Every man-made religion in the world, and frankly, every heart in this room, operates off of a very different principle than the one that God has described here. The principle that we all operate off of naturally, because it's instinctive to us, is is simply this. Obey, and then you'll be accepted and found worthy and saved. 
Right? Isn't that the principle that we all work off of? I mean, when you go to a job, does your boss say to you, man, look, you got a job for the rest of your life. Doesn't matter whether you do the job or not, you got a job for the rest of your life. Does your boss say that to you? No, of course not. It's all about you do the job, then you can keep the job, right? But here God is saying, I saved you. And then he gives them the law. You see, as I said, this is, you know, this is, the whole human system works off of the idea of obey and then you're accepted and then you're found worthy and then you're saved. You know, pray this many times a day, Islam. Pray five times a day. Um, some people, some, you know, even Christian groups will do this, but other groups will say, you know, you can't listen to music and you, and you can't watch movies and you got to wear your hair a certain way and then... Then you're accepted, and then you're found worthy, and and then you can be saved. That's human religion, because that makes sense to us, right? I mean, if if you or I created a religion, that's how we would do it. But we have to unlearn that. That's why one of our banners over here on the sides says unlearn. We have to unlearn some of these things that come instinctive to us, because God works completely differently. He, He just flips everything you think you know about life and about spirituality and about religion. He flips it upside down. Because here, he's saying, no, I've already saved you by my effort. It wasn't about you. Your salvation has nothing to do with the law. It had nothing to do with your goodness. It had nothing to do with your work. It had nothing to do with your effort. This is what Paul says in the New Testament when he says in Ephesians 2, you have been saved by grace, not by works. So nobody boasts, right? Nobody can walk around and say, well, you know, I... Man, I pray five times a day and I'm found worthy and God saved me because I'm better than you. No. Paul says nobody is saved on the basis of works. This is exactly what God is doing here. He's saying, I saved you, then I gave the law. But, you, but your, your obedience to the law had nothing to do with your salvation. And of course, it's for very good reason. Because we will see it next week. This law that God gives Israel is so pure, it's so good, it's so holy that sinful, broken people like us, uh, we could never live up to it. It would be a death sentence. Nobody could be saved if we had to be saved by the law. And so God saved Israel apart from the law. So let's, I, I just want to make sure that, you know, I know I keep hitting this, but this is, people don't get this. Let me make sure you understand it. This is, we got to make sure that we understand this. This is really good news that we are not saved on the basis of our measuring up to some standard, okay? So I, I want you to do this. I just, well, here, here's the point I want you to understand, that the law was not given to save you. The law was not given to save you. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to t- turn and look at the person on your left. Turn and look at the person on your left, okay? I'm sorry, on your left, on your left, on your left, on your left. And I want you to say to that person on your left, I just want you to say, the law was not given to save you. And say it just like that. You got to say the law was not given to save you. Okay, good. And if you were one of the people on the far left... Well, it's lonely being on the far left. Move to the right and you won't be so lonely. Okay, that's a whole other thing, though. We could get into that. Okay. If the law wasn't given to save, then what was it given for? Okay, now here's where we're going to get into the five reasons that God gave the law. And none of them were to save you, okay? None of them were to save you. Okay, here's the first reason that 
God gave us the law. The first is to create intimacy between us and him. That's part of the reason he gave the law, to create intimacy between us and him. Notice what he says in chapter 19, verse 5. He says, out of all the nations in the world, you will be my, and then underline this phrase, treasured possession. Underline that phrase. That expression, treasured possession, is very important. Now, it doesn't mean, okay, you guys are going to go home saying, man, he just kept saying the same thing over and over. But I want to make sure you get this. It doesn't mean that if they obeyed, he would accept them because he's already dealt with that. They're already saved. They're already accepted. That's not going to change, okay? He's already accepted them. What it means, this phrase, treasured possession, well, think about it. Think about this. Think about, um, think about a marriage. It's, it's very possible, isn't it, to be a husband and a wife, to be legally married, but to have no intimacy. Like to have no emotional intimacy, no, no physical intimacy, to have no spiritual intimacy. It's very possible, right? Well, this phrase, treasured possession, speaks to uh, an intimacy that is more than just like a legal relationship between two people, but it speaks to a depth of relationship. Um, it speaks to intimacy. Let me, let me explain it this way. Um, back in those days, if you were a king, you owned everything in your kingdom. Like you owned the roads, you owned the buildings, you owned all of the people. Okay, all of it was yours. But each king also had a private collection of things that they owned that were the king's personal treasure. You know, like they might be pieces of art or pieces of gold or silver or whatever that he really doted on and that he cared for uniquely. So he had a different relationship, a much more special relationship with, with this. God, who is the ultimate king, of course, is saying, I own everybody and everything. All the nations of the world are mine. But I, I want a special relationship with you, Israel. Not just a legal relationship where, yes, you're saved and all that. But I, I don't want just that. I want an intimate relationship. I want you to be my treasure. Now, again, think about... I want you to think about a romantic relationship. What happens when you first start to get to know somebody that you really like dig? Can you say dig anymore? Or is that like an old 70s expression? What do you say? What do you say? Somebody tell me. What do you say? I mean, like somebody that you really, what? Into. Somebody that you're really into. Okay. What do you want to find out? You, you want to find out things that they like, right? Like you want to find out, you know, what are their things that, that really uh, that, that they really care about so that, so that if you do those things, you know, it'll show them that you love them. And so you listen and you observe to find out what delights them. If it's music, if it's flowers, if it's sports, if it's whatever. You, if you ever notice when you're really, like when, when you were just first meeting somebody, you suddenly take this uh, interest in the stuff that they really dig, right? Or uh, the stuff that they're really into. I'm sorry, I won't say dig anymore. Okay. You take this sudden interest in that stuff. Well, what, this is what God is doing when he gives Israel the law. He's saying, here's what I'm into. Here's what delights me. This, honesty, 
and integrity and justice. Do those things. Not to be saved. You've already been saved. But do those things because, because you, you love me. That's, that's why I want you to do it. Because you love me. It's what I'm into. I want you to be into it too. And you see, over the years, I've had conversations with people who just can't understand this. And what they, what, here's what they would say. They would say, well, if I'm already saved, why would I obey? And that shows that they don't really get Christianity. Because their obedience to God is all about fear. It's all about being afraid of what's going to happen if they don't obey. Imagine a woman who stops by the store on, the way, on her way home from work, and she buys all these groceries to make this elaborate dinner for her husband. And that sounds really loving, right? That sounds like a neat thing. But what if you found out that she's only doing it because she's deathly afraid not to? Like she's only doing it because she doesn't want her husband to abuse her that night. Well, then that changes everything, right? It's not that she's doing it out of love. She's doing something out of just absolutely fear. That's not intimacy. Fear isn't intimacy. See, God is saying, I've already saved you, but, but let's be intimate. I like this. Oh, do that. That brings me pleasure. And if that's beginning to sound a little like sexual intimacy, you're beginning to get the picture. Any good lover does what the other lover likes, what brings them delight, what brings them pleasure. Sometimes I say it this way, that he or she gets to go places that no one else gets to go because of their unique relationship, right? And God is saying, here's what pleases me. Now, that's, I think you would have to agree that that's very different than how most people understand the law. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, as an expression of God's love? I know that's radical. But the first reason that God gave the law was to create intimacy between us and, and between him. Now, here's the second reason. That God gave the law. I still hear this ringing. I don't know if you guys can hear it, but uh, sound people, I hear the ringing in my ear. Um, The second reason God gave the law was to create a radically distinct community. Okay, a radically distinct community. Now, I want you to notice, this is really important. Notice this, in verse 2, verse 2 says that all Israel, did you notice this? That all Israel was camped around the mountain. And then in verse 6, God said that he was giving the law to Israel to make them a holy nation. That word holy means utterly, radically distinct. That's what holy means. Utterly, radically distinct. Okay. Now listen to me. Because some of you come from backgrounds that you were taught that to be holy, to be distinct, meant to be essentially Uh, weird, like anti-culture, that you had to wear your hair different than everybody else, and you couldn't wear the same clothes that other people wore, and you couldn't go to movies, and you couldn't listen to music unless it was Christian music, and you essentially had to be anti-culture. I am so sorry that anybody ever taught you that. And look, there there are legions of people 
who have come out of church backgrounds that taught them that kind of stuff. And I can't tell you how many people out there who never go to church anymore or grew up in churches like that that taught them that kind of nonsense. I have a stronger word for it, but here I'll just say nonsense. Um, And it burned them. And they never wanted to be a part of a church again because that's the culture of the church that they grew up in. I'm so sorry if, if you were taught any of that stuff. I want you to watch this because it's interesting. Historians will tell you that the first human cities were built right here in this Mesopotamian region that Israel is in at this moment. And, and that, that, most, that, that the first cities were built at this time as well, about this time. What is interesting is that those cities were always built around uh, a high place. Sometimes it was built, that those cities were built around a natural mountain or hill. But oftentimes they were built around a man-made, uh, essentially a hill or a mountain. Actually, it was called, a, it was called a, a ziggurat. You know what a ziggurat is? I'm not talking about a cigarette. I'm talking about a ziggurat. You know what a ziggurat is? Okay, we've got a picture of it. Let's go ahead and show them that picture if you don't mind. That's what a ziggurat would look like. Okay? Basically, it's a man-made high place at the top of which would be a temple. Now, why would they do that? The reason they did it is that the basic principle of the human city was, and frankly still is, that you wanted to live in a place where you could get up to the top and you could make offerings so that the gods would bless you. And by ascending the steps, you were saying, look at what I've done. Uh, Look at what I've sacrificed to the gods. And it was a way of saying, now gods, make me prosperous, bless me, whatever. And so you could say that the organizing principle of of, of the human city was, I will ascend, I will do, and I will prove myself as I ascend, I prove myself worthy of the gods and their blessing and their acceptance, okay? Now we do the same thing today in human cities, except our gods our success and fame and wealth and those kinds of things. And we, what do we want to do? We want to ascend to, the, to, uh, to success. We want to get to the top rung of the ladder. We'll make sacrifices to get there. We'll make extreme sacrifices to get there, uh, in fact. And then, if I get there, then I know that I'm somebody, that I'm, I'm not a loser, that I'm, that I'm happy, that I'm secure. I'll be significant then. In, in other words, I'll, I, I will be blessed if I get there. That's the human city. That's the way of thinking of the human city. But God brings his people to this mountain. And he has them camp around this mountain. And they would get the significance of that, okay, because they knew what was happening with other cities. And God says, by having his people camp around this mountain that he's chosen, he says, he's saying, when he says, I'll make you a holy nation, what he means is, I will make you a radically different Countercultural nation. In other words, I will make you an alternate society, a completely alternate, different, distinct kind of city. And this is, this is what's so interesting, because right away you begin to see these contrasts between God's city and the human city. 
Okay, in human cities, human cities were built around a mountain that the people chose, or else maybe it was built around uh, a mountain that they built, and the purpose was to attract the gods, to get the gods' attention. But in God's city, it was completely different. They were built around a mountain that God chose, not that they chose, not that they built. They were built around a mountain that God had built and that he chose to attract them. Human cities were built around the organizational principle of of if I attain, if I ascend, if I get to the top, then I'll be blessed. In God's city, it's completely different, though, with God's people. He He says the organizational principle here is very different. The organizational principle here is that there is a God who comes down, who saves and loves people who don't deserve it, and who haven't proven themselves A God who identifies with the oppressed and the afflicted and the poor, which is all of what Israel was when they were back in Egypt. Okay, And so it was in this sense that he would make them holy, different, distinct. In the sense, it was in this sense. You know, they didn't have to live. God wanted to make them holy in the sense that they didn't have to live with the same anxieties and the same zero-sum starting point that people in man-made cities had to live with, where they had to prove themselves, and they had to do more, and they had to strive more, and they had to sacrifice more, all of which led to using things like sex, money, and power in destructive and exploitative ways. In God's city, it was completely different. Because the organizing principle was that the people there are already saved, and they're already accepted by God. He already, he, he loves them. You're already mine. Because of that was the organizing principle, these people could live differently in every respect. Every part of their life, their their economic life, their artistic life, their family life, the way they handle sex and money and power, all of those things could be utterly different, holy. And so you you see again, the, the law was far from a way of getting an individual saved so that they could go to heaven. The law was an outline for a radically different society that would be a thing of beauty when compared to the striving, self-centered, exploitative way of life in the human city. This is why often when you read the Psalms, you'll see that they, he, they, you know, the psalmist will refer to the law as being beautiful because it created a whole, it was beautiful. It, it, you didn't have to strive in the law. You didn't have to work for your salvation. It was, that was already provided. And it provided... A, an outline for a beautiful kind of people in a beautiful kind of city who lived differently and who used sex, money, and power, among other things, very differently from people in a human city. Let me give you an example. Let me just give you three quick examples of that from the law, real quickly. And we won't spend much time on this. I just want to make sure you get this. Let me start with sex. I don't, I don't know if you realize this, but in the Mosaic Law, Israel was the first culture in the world in which adultery was not just a sin for women, but it was also a sin for men. In other words, God said, not just to women, if you commit adultery, it's a sin. But he said to men. Because you know, in, in, in all other cultures, men could just do whatever they wanted. Women couldn't. Israel was the first culture in which it was like, no, adultery's wrong. Women, men, it's just, it's wrong. By the way, I also want to mention that 
that uh, Israel was also the first culture in which a daughter could inherit the family's wealth as well as sons. Israel is the first culture like that. Okay, sex. Here's money. Listen to this. Every Israelite, you guys think you have it bad. Every Israelite, if you, if you add it all up, all of the offerings that God prescribed in the law, they, every Israelite had to give 23.3% of their income to care for the poor and the priests who had no other occupation except um, taking care of God's temple and uh, leading worship uh, among the people. 23.3%. Just to care for the poor. Imagine. This is how they use their money. And then when you think about power, listen to this. Oh, this one is very relevant to us today. Listen to this. Aliens, immigrants, racial outsiders. The law said, God said in the law, he said, he said you're already saved. Because you're already saved, I want you to do this because you love me and be an expression of who I am. He said, I want, you, uh, I want you to give the same rights and privileges to aliens, immigrants, and racial outsiders as you have. As anyone else has. Why? He said, he, he told him, he said, because you remember what it was like to be an alien living in Egypt, right? So I want you to do the same thing. Now, I don't know if that would have any effect on your view of how we should treat illegal aliens, immigrants, how that might affect your policies about those kinds of things. But that's what God said for the people of Israel. Here's what I'm wanting you to understand, is that there was no society on earth like that society. None. Okay, so the law was not a stairway to heaven. It doesn't save you. It could never save a person. It was given to create intimacy between us and God. It was also given as a way for his people to be molded into a community whose way of life was distinct in a beautiful way that expressed the very nature of who God is. Sadly, Israel never became that. Because as beautiful as the law was, it was given to people as broken as you and me. And though Israel was to be an agent of redemption in the world, they, they, they could never really be that. If, and as we learn from the rest of the scriptures, if, if God was going to redeem the world and if he was going to rescue the world as promised, if one day there would be a world that operated like he wanted his city, his people to operate like, if that was ever going to happen, he would have to rescue the world through one who could take Israel's place, who could fulfill that law, who would be that beautiful, that holy, and who could be an acceptable sacrifice for Israel and for the rest of the world's inability to live like God wanted them to live. Had to be one person who could do that, or else the world could never be rescued. And the New Testament says, speaking of Jesus, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, in him, we could become the righteousness of God, that kind of beautiful people. Now, as I said, 
This is a sermon that has two parts. But I think you're probably already beginning to see signs of the gospel here in the book of Exodus. You see, first of all, grace, right? These people weren't saved on the basis of their obedience to the law. They were saved on the basis of God's love, his work. He did it completely, not them. So you're seeing grace already. And you're seeing this beautiful holiness that someone has to be able to fulfill. All of which points us to Jesus. Now let me just close with this. Our vision statement as a church says this. It says that we want to bring, the vision of City Church is to bring spiritual and social and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond through a movement of people who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we're saying in that vision statement, what we're getting at is what God wanted Israel to be, what he now wants the church to be. We're saying that only when people have been transformed by the cross of Jesus Christ can they ever begin to express the beauty of God in a way that could transform a city. And it starts with a church with a vision to be a holy city within a man-made city. And unfortunately, that word holy is so misunderstood um, often by the very people who should understand it. It's not about being weird. It's not about being anti-cultural. It's not about being mean-spirited. It's not about being judgmental. I feel sometimes when I'm talking to people uh, outside the church, I feel sometimes that I'm having to overcome so much, maybe you do too, so much junk from the past, from their past, and the stuff that their church has taught them about what it meant to be holy. They can't even understand it anymore because we have screwed that up so much. You know, I, I see that like Westboro Baptist that goes and protests and screams and shouts at people. I was just down at USI uh, in the last few weeks and, and they were telling me about a guy from a church that had come and he, and he stood in their free speech area and he was just screaming at people and you're going to hell and, and you're a whore and, then, and Jezebel and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, who wants that? That's not what it means to be a holy city. Within a city, a holy people within a city. That's not what it means at all. Yeah, it means that we are to be different, but different in a beautiful way. Like the difference between a Rembrandt and, and graffiti on a brick wall. Or like the difference between the beauty of a Mozart symphony compared to the sound of the crack of a whip on the back of a slave. I like the beauty, the smell of warm, fresh bread out of the oven compared to the acrid smell of artillery fire in battle. Different, yes, but in a gorgeous, beautiful way. That's what God put City Church here for, to bring radical beauty, spiritual, social, cultural beauty to this city. That's the holy calling to which we as a church have been called. That's our vision. Would you bow with me for prayer? Our Lord Jesus Christ, we recognize that we are completely and unable in and of ourselves to fulfill this beautiful, gorgeous law that you have given to your people. Uh, we are not worthy. 
But we do not count on ourselves. We count on the Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfilled that law, who was the beauty of that law. And he became sin to pay the price for my sins when he hung on a cross. On that cross above him, there was a sign mockingly that said, this is the king of the Jews. And in reality, he was not only the king of the Jews, he was the king of the world. And he hung on that cross for me because I'm a sinner. Lord, we trust in him, in him alone. If there are people here in the room this morning, because of their religious background, that they think that they have to trust in themselves to be found worthy of salvation, or would you disavow them of that notion this morning and that this morning, that they would, at the, for the very first time in their life, that they would come to a place where they would bow their knee at the cross and they say, no longer am I trusting in myself. I, I understand. The, I could never live up to that. Lord Jesus, you are my Savior. Lord, would you just bring them to that place this morning? Because what Jesus did after he died on the cross, he was, he was resurrected and then he ascended into heaven so that the Holy Spirit could come inside of us. The law could never come inside of us. It, just looked, it was like a mirror on the outside, Lord. It, it, it could only show us what was wrong with us. It could never change us on the inside. But the Holy Spirit could do that. And, and Lord, would you change every one of us this morning? Lord, for those that, have been, that grew up in places where they were taught that holiness essentially looked like ugliness. Lord, whatever extent that I have ever taught that to any group of people, I, I ask your forgiveness. Lord, would you change people? Would you change these people? Would you cause them to see that holiness is beauty? Lord, would you show them that? Lord, would you change us as a church? Would you make us a beautiful city within a city? Enable us by the power of your spirit bring spiritual and social and cultural renewal to this city of Evansville and beyond as we are transformed by the gospel of you, Lord Jesus Christ. It's in your name.